Dear Heavenly Father, we place all our hope, all our trust in you wherever we're at today, whether we're in the thick of a battle, we know that you're by our side. We give it over to you. Be with Alex as he speaks today. Open our hearts to receive from you. In your name we pray, amen. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. This is the promise of the Declaration of Independence, right? Signed right here in Philadelphia. And the human condition can really be summed up like this. This is what people are all about. It can be simplified as an attempt to find happiness. That's what people want out of life, right? We want to be happy. That's what we're looking for. People in this room, people online, people in our community and our city and the world are pursuing different paths through life, all hoping that that path leads to happiness, hoping that they find that elusive happiness that we're all looking for. Um, people are chasing all kinds of things that they hope will make them happy. And they believe that getting these things will give them that happiness they're looking for. And you're probably spending a great deal of your life, your time, your money, your energy pursuing something, all because you believe deep down if you had that relationship, if you had that car, if you had that address, then you'd be happy. But can we just be honest for a minute? As humans, we are rarely happy. You know why? Because we rarely get what we want. Even when we do get what we want, it never turns out exactly what we imagine. Whose life turned out exactly like they thought it would? Yeah, not mine. There's so many things that I would thought would happen that have not. And even when things have happened, they've not been like I imagined or how I dreamed. We have fleeting moments of happiness because we have believed a lie that we can only be happy when we get what we want. And in life, you rarely get what you want. Even when we do get what we want, what happens? We want something new. Um, the reality about desire is it's never full. When you feed your desires, they expand. They don't ever get sated or satisfied. I mean, a great example of this is Fortnite skins. Um, I'll buy a skin on this game Fortnite there's different avatars. You can dress up your avatar in different skins. And I'll buy one and I'll be like, this is the greatest skin that's ever been. I never need to buy another Fortnite skin. I never need to waste money on this again because I have this bush wookie, you know? I actually don't have this one, but if I had that, you know, I wouldn't need any other skins. You know what happens? What happens the next day, Caden? <laughs> in Fortnite, what happens to the item shop the next day? Yeah, there's new skins out. And you know what? There's a new skin I need the next day. They brought out something even better, and I need to get that skin. Why don't we just get one and it satisfies us? Why do we always have to get more? Why do, when we buy something, we're like, oh, this is the only one I'll ever need. No, you need more and more and more, and it never satisfies you. It never makes you happy. No matter how many Fortnite skins I get, I'll never be satisfied. In his book, Consumed, Benjamin Barber argues that from birth, we live in a really weird world where we are constantly being marketed to, and it happens so often, and it starts so young, we don't realize how weird the world is that we are living in. Most Americans are exposed to how many advertisements do you think in a day? It's thousands. Yeah, it's between four and 10,000 per day. Some of that depends on how much television and internet use you have. The average American is seeing 4,000 to 10,000 ads per day. And Benjamin Barber argues in his book, this is a weird world to live in. 
This means you're constantly being told there's something you don't have that you need in order to be happy. And when you hear that enough, you begin to believe it, and happiness seems more and more elusive. The first ad agency in the world was N.W. Iyer and Son. Do you know where they opened in 1869? Philadelphia. Philly had the first ad agency in the world. In the late 1920s, ad agencies began to shift. So they started in 1869, and what they would do is they would put out usually newspaper ads, and they would say, you need a new cart? You need a new wagon? You need a new sink, whatever? Here's a place where you can go get it. But in the 1920s, ad agencies began to shift from showing people what they could get, where they could get what they need, to showing them what they should want. We moved from a need culture to a want culture. All this is talked about if you uh, read through ad history, advertisement agency history. Um, interestingly enough, the nephew of Sigmund Freud, Edward Bernays, was, guess what he did for a living? He was in advertisement. And he thought that he could take psychology and use psychology like his uncle, Sigmund Freud, was um, sharing with the world. He believed he could use that psychology psychology to shift how consumers think and ultimately control how they spend their money. And in 2022, we're now living in the reality of these shifts. We've been living in a world that since birth has been telling us that happiness can be bought. We've been sold a lie and most of us have spent every waking moment chasing things that will never make us happy. Whew. That's a lot for an introduction, right? That's heavy. That's a lot to think about. But there's good news because Jesus offers a different way of being human. Today we're going to continue our exploration of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's his manifesto about what kingdom life looks like living in this rebel world. And what he says about self-fulfillment is surprising, at least to us as modern Westerners. It's going to surprise us. It's not going to be what you think. Jesus isn't going to say, if you made a six-figure salary you'd be happy. He's not going to say, if you had perfect kids who always obeyed and grew up to be lawyers and doctors, you'd be happy. He doesn't say, if you have a beautiful, gorgeous spouse who's just always there for you and meets all your needs, you'll be happy. If you have the most amazing job in the world and you travel internationally all the time and it's so fun, you'll be happy. No, Jesus is going to say something surprising. So we're going to do some philosophical deep dives today. We're going to talk about happiness that's at the root of psychology, it's at the root of philosophy, it's at the root of the human condition. And hopefully, we might just find that our happiness was never about getting more, but instead us becoming different people with what we already have. First, we have to talk, though, about society. And when we say society, it's the unseen cultural forces at work in our minds and on our bodies. Do you realize you're constantly being shaped by something? You're constantly being shaped. How you think about things, how you feel about things, you're being shaped. We're constantly being shaped by what we see and hear and experience, and culture shapes us every moment of the day. But like fish swimming in water, we don't even recognize it. This uh, comic originally showed up in the New Yorker, but now people have done dozens of versions of it. And the mom fish is like, hey, morning, how's the water today? And the fish is like, what the heck is water? Like, they don't even know what water is. It's just all around them. They don't even recognize it. 
We live in an individualistic, consumeristic world, and that shapes how we think about happiness, and that even shapes how we think about Christianity, but we don't even think about it. We don't even realize it. These are just automatic ways of thinking and feeling that we don't even realize have uh, really formed so much of how we view the world. Now, Jesus told his followers to go everywhere and to make disciples, teaching people to live and love like he did. Essentially, he said, go everywhere and shape people by my teachings and by my life. But we're not a neutral substance. People aren't just out here like a blob and they're like, I'm just waiting for Jesus to come along and shape me with his life and teachings. We're already being shaped. And so sometimes to be shaped into the shape of Jesus, he first has to beat us out of the shape, the misshapen shape that culture has made us. Culture is already forming us, and many times being formed by Christ comes into direct conflict with the 24-7 message of formation that culture has been sending our way. And that's why 45 minutes on a Sunday isn't enough to become like Jesus. Like, I'm glad you come here. It's certainly not less than this, but it's, you need daily interactions with Jesus and with his teachings. You need to practice them and implement them every single day because 24 hours a day, you are being affected by culture. You're being formed by culture, and 45 minutes once a week isn't going to be enough to counterform you to become like Jesus. You're being squeezed into the image of the culture at all time. Every time you read a billboard or you turn on the TV or listen to music, you're being shaped by the people and the expectations of life, of the culture you swim in. And this is happening all the time and we don't even realize it. So what does this have to do with the human pursuit of happiness? Well, we've unconsciously accepted the culture's pursuit of happiness and never stopped to ask if the path they say will make us happy actually will. And many times even churches have been shaped by these culturistic, cultural, individualistic, consumeristic cultures of the West. Um, sometimes churches have been more shaped by how America thinks than they have by how Jesus thinks. We can't imagine a version of the good life, a happy life, where we do not get what we want. Like when you think about the good life, a happy life, it's usually you imagining you getting what you want. Here's some truths, quote-unquote, truths that culture have made so common in our everyday world today that we simply accept them as absolutes. We don't even think there's anything wrong with these statements. Look up here with me at these statements. Nobody and nothing should stand in the way of what I want. That's a foundational truth in our society. If someone or something stands in the way of what I want, it's a form of oppression. If I can't get what I want, then I cannot be happy. These are underlying beliefs that shape our society today. And you can take any hot-button topic on either side of the political landscape, and I promise you that both sides wholeheartedly believe these same three things. They're arguing over something, but at the core, they both believe the same three things. And we have to wrestle with this because culture is constantly telling us to believe these things. We're constantly being formed by these. And I think Jesus would have a counter argument. The way of Jesus says these three statements are deeply flawed. Jesus is going to argue for a life that doesn't look anything like these three foundational statements that much of our country is built on, that culture is constantly trying to form us to believe as truth. So let's look at the teachings of Jesus where we left off in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to read verses 16 through 18. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, 
for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, so it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Notice Jesus says, when you fast, not if you fast. He's not like, eh, if you feel like it. You know, if you're just like, I really want to go without food today. I'm kind of over food, you know. I think I'll fast today. No, he says, when you fast. For the first century Jew, fasting was a weekly practice. Many Jewish households chose to skip a meal every week. And, and they would take the money that they normally would spend on that meal and give it to the poor. So it was not only an act of spiritual sacrifice, but it was an act of justice to help the poor. Jesus assumes his followers will continue this practice, and he warns them, like he did earlier in this chapter with prayer and good deeds, to not do it just to appear spiritual. This wasn't about trying to look better than somebody else. This was actually about teaching yourself that you need God. Fasting is a common religious practice. It's not just in Judaism. It's not just in Christianity. It's a common religious practice across many faith traditions. It's choosing to go without food in order to focus on the spiritual. It's saying no to something that we want, something that we need, in order to remind our bodies that we also need God. Now, growing up in and around evangelical churches, I almost never heard anything about fasting growing up. Um, when I was in seminary, one pastor told me, nobody wants to do that. I was like, why don't we ever talk about fasting? Jesus talked a lot about it. He's like, nobody wants to do that. With, with the rise of attractional churches, American Christianity has tried to focus on the parts people like and avoid the parts of the faith they didn't care for. But there's a problem with that. Sometimes the thing we want to do the least is the thing that will help us the most. My doctor's like, stop eating bacon. Your cholesterol's high. But bacon is what I want to do most, but it's also the thing I need to do least. The thing that I want to do least, like exercise and diet, is the thing I need most. And that, I think, applies to our spiritual lives a lot of time. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 5.24 says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. They've crucified the flesh. It's not about what they want. They've crucified those things. Paul doesn't hate the physical and love the spiritual. That's called Gnosticism. That was a heresy that was going around in the first century. He sees humans as one integrated being. We are both physical and spiritual. And he uses the term flesh to refer to our selfish desires. Fasting helps us crucify our flesh. It helps kill our selfishness. Skipping a meal or going an entire day without eating is a way to focus your mind on God. Um, in Tennessee, when I was a pastor down there, I once encouraged a young man who was wrestling with a host of destructive behaviors to begin to fast once a week. I was like, this is how you crucify your flesh. Start fasting once a week. So he did it one time, and afterwards he came back to me and he says, I didn't get anything out of that. I didn't get anything from that. Like, it felt like a waste. Fasting isn't a one-time thing you do and you gain superpowers, okay? Everybody would be doing it if you're like, just go one day without food, all of a sudden you're super Christian. You're the greatest human Christian who's ever lived, right? No, it's a weekly, lifelong practice of fasting that will help kill your selfishness. It's a habit, it's a ritual habit of continuously going without in order to kill your selfishness. Fasting once or twice a year 
likely won't have much effect on your spiritual formation. We need weekly reminders that we don't need everything that we want. We need weekly reminders that we need God just as much, if not more, than we need food and water and oxygen and sleep. If you went without food and water and oxygen um, and sleep, you would die, you would starve, you would suffocate. When we attempt to live without God, don't be surprised if it feels like drowning because you need God to be healthy and whole. Our culture is obsessed with getting more. Like more. How do I get more? More, 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 more. That's part of that advertising culture. But following Jesus often means willingly receiving less. Fasting frees us from our desire for more by reminding us that as much as our stomach needs food, even more so our soul needs God. Skipping a meal each day or going sunup to sundown without eating one day helps remind us about what matters and what we really need to live an abundant, full life. Use your meal times to thank God for everything you have, to reflect on what you really need. Remind yourself that life is more than what you eat. Abundant life is living in close daily communion with God. Sometimes going without reminds us of what we really, really need. Notice what Jesus teaches next. This is in verses 19 through 24. Do not store up for yourself treasure on earth. Moths and vermin can destroy it. Thieves can break in and steal it. But store up for yourself treasure in heaven. Moths and vermin can't get up there to destroy it. And thieves can't break in and steal it. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I've always been fascinated by buried treasure. Anybody else? I like buried treasure. I'd like to find some. I grew up digging random holes in my yard. My dad would be riding along on his riding lawnmower and go, boom, and he'd go, Alex! And of course, I'd be over there with the shovel in a different corner of the yard digging a new hole. I was convinced... I was going to stumble upon ancient treasure. Like, I was just knew I was going to find some. I've never found anything. My brother eventually got a metal detector. I'd be out there metal detecting all the time. I'm like, I'm going to find treasure. Dig up a bunch of old rusty horseshoes and a bunch of garbage and trash. Never any treasure. Um, but I was sure that, like the Goonies, I was going to stumble upon this ancient hidden treasure, and there was going to be all these traps and riddles to solve, and then I was going to get it. Um, and America has some wild legends about buried or misplaced or missing treasures. Anyone ever hear of Thomas Beale? In the 1800s, he came across an abandoned mine full of gold, silver, and jewels in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Him, along with 30 other adventurers, transported the goods to Bedford County, Virginia, and buried them. And then he created three ciphers detailing what the treasure was, where it was located, and the contact information of the people that helped him bury it. Beale put the letters in an iron box, gave them to a friend, and instructed them to only open it if he had it returned in 10 years. Well, the ciphers he didn't return, and the ciphers were eventually published in 1885, but only one of the three has been cracked, and no one has found the treasures. Here's one of the ciphers. 
He has all these numbers, and he says that using the words in the Declaration of Independence is the key to decipher the cipher. So all these treasure hunters have been trying to decipher this. It's only six hours to Bedford, Virginia, by the way. I looked it up. Who's ready for a road trip to find some treasure? I love treasure. <laughs> Jesus says it is human nature to collect treasure. We cannot help it. You're going to treasure something. The only control we have is over what we choose to treasure. And so reading this passage, I'm like, so how do I store treasure in heaven? Like, do I take money and I like toss it? I'm like, God, take it. Store it up there where thieves can't get it. You know, like, I don't understand what Jesus is saying. How do I put this in my heavenly vault, God? Uh, I love what Dallas Willard, how he explained this passage. He says, this is what it means to store up treasure in heaven. Invest your life in what God is doing. Those things that cannot be lost. Of course, this means we will invest in our relationship with Jesus and through him to God. But beyond that, in close union with it, we will devote ourselves to the good of other people. Those around us within the range of our power to affect. And we'll also care for this astonishingly, astonishingly rich and beautiful realm. The earth itself of which we both, uh, both us and our neighbors are parts. Thus, to lay up treasure in heaven is to treasure all the intimate and touching aspects of heaven's life, all of which God is doing on earth. The treasure we have in heaven is also something very much available to us now. We can and should draw upon it as needed, for it is nothing less than God himself and the wonderful society of his kingdom, even now interwoven in my life. He says it's your relationship with God, it's your relationship with other people, it's your relationship with creation. This is how you store up treasures in heaven. The things that will last when the world is long gone and the sun has long burned out. And Jesus is a brilliant teacher. He warns us that where we put our treasure, whether it's in physical, material things that will be left when we die, or whether it's in relationships that will last forever. He says, wherever you put your treasure, your heart will be also. Our emotions will chase after what we're chasing with our lives. Our emotions follow our longings. Now, Jesus here begins talking about eyes, which can feel like such a weird swerve. You know, if you look at the passage, he's like, hey, be careful where you put your treasure. Your emotion's going to follow where you put your treasure. Be careful where you put it. See where you're investing. By the way, eyes. It's good to have good eyes. You're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? What is he saying? He's not weirdly swerving. It actually ties in. Jesus was a master of the Old Testament. He's cleverly making a reference to Genesis 3.6. In Genesis 3.6, Eden sees this temptation to take of this fruit. God says, you have all the fruit, just don't take of this one. This is your act of love to me. Don't take this one. You have every other one in the whole world. But she saw the fruit, she desired the fruit, and she took the fruit. 1 John 2, 15-17 says, Don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. So I don't think Jesus is making a weird swerve here. I think talking about eyes is a necessary thing when we're talking about desire, when we're talking about treasure, when we're talking about happiness. What you look at will determine what you want. 
a lot of times a new video game will come out and I'm like, that looks like garbage. Then I watch a couple trailers for it. I'm like, I'm going to pre-order that. That looks good. <laughs> Somehow they convince me. Like the more I read about it, I'm like, I'd play that. What we look at determines what we want. Instagram, <laughs> craft stores, right? It's all about images to make us envy and desire so that we spend money. What you want, what you want, what you desire, what you treasure will affect how you feel. Some of us are miserable, not because Jesus is mad at us and he's like, I'm going to make you miserable. Some of us are miserable, not because Jesus is like, I just don't like you. I'm going to punish you. Some of us are miserable, not because his way of life doesn't work. We're miserable because we've collected a bunch of treasure that not only doesn't make us happy, it makes us miserable. Our treasure hoard stinks. You know dragons? They collect treasure and then they sleep on it? Apparently. That's how it is in the storybook. I've never met a dragon. Um, we're kind of like this. We're a dragon who's collected a bunch of trash and we say, this is going to make me happy and it stinks. It makes us miserable. Some of the things we have treasured is actually making our lives worse. That's what Jesus is telling us. You've looked at some things, you've longed for some things, you've gathered some things, and you've said, this is my treasure. And it's not something that makes your life better, it's something that makes your life worse. Jesus continues to dismantle our pursuit of happiness. And he uses this metaphor about eyes and then begins to talk about light and darkness. He says, what if what you think is light actually turns out to be darkness? Wouldn't that be incredibly dark? That's essentially the little turn of phrase he makes. If the thing that you think will make you happy actually makes you miserable, how deep will that misery be? If the thing you sacrifice and desperately fight for actually makes you more miserable, how sad is that? We have people in our community, in our city, in our world who are desperately pursuing things that they think will make them happy, and many of them actually just make them emptier, lonelier, and more miserable. John Mark Comer, in his book Live No Lies, argues that the primary way that the devil attacks is not with telekinesis, throwing, you know, things around the room, like, ooh, spooky, you know? It's not with demon possession, even though all these things likely the devil has used but, he says, the primary attack that the devil makes in your life is with lies. He gets you to believe things that aren't true. He gets you convinced that things will make you happy that will actually make you miserable. Here's what John Mark Comer says. The devil lies to us about what will make us happy. And these lies play to our own disordered desires which have been normalized in a sinful society. We're constantly being advertised as, yeah, those are the things that will make you happy. And the selfish part of us says, yes, I do want that. And the devil says, that will make you happy. And all the time Jesus says, you think it's going to be a light that's going to bring happiness into your life, but it's a darkness. And he says, what a darkness it is when you hoped it would be light. Jesus ends this conversation about happiness by talking about money. And uh, I don't like what he says, so we're just going to stop right here and not talk about it. No, I'm just kidding. We're going to talk about it. But I still don't like what he says, right? Why do you have to go and talk about money? He's doing great. You know, he's talking about what's going to make us happy and wrong desires. That's awesome. Just leave money out of it. Who thinks their lives would be happier if they had a little bit more money? You can be honest. Yeah. You believe the lie of the devil. Me too, right? Um, I hate when Jesus talks about money because he never says what I want him to say. I want him to say, 
pray a little bit more, and I'll give you a raise. Like, I would love that. Or if he says, you know, money can be used wrong, but my followers are going to use it right, so I promise to give you a lot of it. No, he doesn't say any of those things. Here, here's one of the things I hate about Jesus' teaching about money. Luke 6, 24. Woe to you who are rich. You've already received your comfort. Jesus is talking about eternity. He's talking about his kingdom. And he's like, yeah, if you're rich, you've already had your good times. It's not going to be good for you. I don't like that verse. I'd rather just skip over that. <laughs> Read a different one, right? And you say, well, Alex, we're not rich. Like, we're if we have a car, most of us do, Darby and I have two vehicles, one's a Vespa, but it counts. We are richer, we are in the richest 5% of the world on planet Earth. Um, so when he's talking about the rich, he's most of the time talking about us, which is probably why I don't like it. Growing up in churches, I found that churches usually talked about how to become financially more successful because they were obsessed with money and they believed if their people got more money, they would give more money to the church. I found that the churches I were, were, was in rarely used scripture, and when they did, it was not about the dangers of loving money, but instead about wisdom principles, about money and stewardship that were removed from their cultural and historical context. It was essentially like five tips to get financially wealthy, like the Bible teaches. And I'm like, man, I love this sermon. This is great. Um, but it's probably not what I needed to hear. Christians like it because it spiritualizes our idolatry with money, but Jesus never lets us off so easy. Jesus never spiritualizes our idolatry with money. Now, in our culture, especially here on the main line, we believe money is God. And there is no hiding how elitist people are with money uh, and how people with money around here act. I work here at the Mainline Arts Center. And every week, people come in here with more money than cents, and they say the most outlandish things because they see me picking up trash, and they're like, he's a trash man. He's worth nothing. I am rich. I am worth everything. You know, you've seen it. I'm sure you've, you've experienced it. Our culture thinks millionaires are smarter than the poor. If the poor would just learn this or just do this, they wouldn't be poor. The goal of life isn't to become rich. The goal of life is to become like Christ. Jesus was poor. The early church celebrated the poor. It is America that looks down on the poor. Timothy Keller, a pastor in New York City, says, The goal of the Christian when it comes to money is to have money have no hold on you. The goal is not to get a lot. The goal is to have money have no hold on you. And he says, You know that money has no hold on you when you can respect the poor and you can love the rich. Now, I respect the poor. It's really hard for me to love some of these rich people. And you know what that means? Money still has a hold on me. Most of the churches I grew up around suggested the goal of a good American Christian was to be wealthy, blessed by God. And this appeals to our flesh. Our selfish, sinful selves want that. I mean, that sounds good to me. I'd like to be rich. Um, I was looking up some uh, pictures of the coast of Italy, and I'm like, that's lovely. I should vacation there. But it costs more than my entire year's salary to go there, you know? Um, this idea that God wants us to be rich, that we just have to follow his wisdom and then he would make us wealthy, that would never work for the billions of Christians living around the world in third world countries. Can you imagine going into uh, a village in Africa where Christianity is booming or into China where 
secret enclaves of Christianity are booming and say to them, God wants you to be wealthy and rich. They'd be like, you're crazy. Like, they're spirit-filled. They're living the life of the kingdom, but that doesn't involve having lots of money. This idea that Jesus wants us to be financially wealthy only works in the affluent West. And Jesus says having money puts our soul in danger. Our human tendency will be to worship it, all while verbally affirming our allegiance to God. Jesus says, you cannot love God and money, but we try. We certainly try to do both. And it's not just Jesus. The Apostle Paul taught the early churches. He sent around this letter in 1 Timothy 6.10, and he says this, Desiring money is the root of all kinds of evil. And many people have strayed from the faith and ended up hurting themselves and filling their lives with emptiness. We have a lot of people in America. We have a lot of people in American churches. Who have filled their lives with emptiness because their life has been about pursuing money because they believed it would bring them happiness. We think we would be happier if we had a little bit more money, and that reveals how deeply we've begun to worship money. We think our happiness is tied to it. We think it's the key to being happier, but more money will never be enough. Rockefeller was asked, the richest man in the world at the time was asked, how much money is enough? You have so much, billions in today's money once you consider inflation. And he says, just a little bit more. And that's what money does. Happiness is always a few dollars away and you never get there. Your happiness and my happiness has nothing to do with money. Your happiness is about whether you want what Jesus wants or you want what you want. If you want what you want, you'll rarely get it and you'll constantly be disappointed. You will never be happy as long as you think you have to get what you want in order to be happy. What if the path to happiness was not getting more, but instead sometimes willingly giving up what you have? What if the countercultural ways of Jesus hold the key to happiness that we, we all so desperately want? Sometimes people talk about America being a Christian nation, and I understand what they mean. I understand about some of the foundational truths that undergird our nation, but the danger with calling America a Christian nation is we can begin to confuse traits of America with the traits of Jesus, and they are not always one and the same. Often they are opposites, and when it comes to money, Jesus takes a very oppositional view to how we think about it in America. He says you cannot serve Jesus and money. Money makes a good tool, but a terrible and cruel God. Much of American Christianity was built on how God can serve us because the real God of American Christianity is money, and Jesus is our tool to get more of it. My favorite episode of The Twilight Zone is from 1960, and it's called A Nice Place to Visit. A bank robber fleeing from the cops is shot, and when he wakes up, he's in a fancy apartment, and a man is there who says, you can have everything you want. And he's like, seriously, really? At first he enjoys it. He can get any woman he wants. He walks up to any woman, he's like, sleep with me. He goes to gambles, and every game of chance he plays, he wins. Everything he wants, they just give him. But after a while, getting everything he wants begins to eat at him. Let's watch this clip. But just between you and me, Fats, I don't think I belong here. I don't think I fit in. Oh, nonsense. Of course you do. Oh, no, I mean it. I mean it. It's just somebody must have goofed. If I got to stay here another day, I'm going to go nuts. Look, look, I don't belong in heaven, see? 
I want to go to the other place. Heaven? <laughs> Whatever gave you the idea you were in heaven, Mr. Valentine. This is the other place. for eternity. Getting everything you want won't make you happy. Getting everything you want would be hell. In a world that is telling us to pursue happiness, Jesus has a counter offer for us. Matthew 16, 24. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Take up their cross and follow me. Your cross isn't things you don't like. Like, sometimes it's like, I got a flat tire. This is just my cross to bear. No, the cross is the end of your self-will. No longer is life about getting what you want, what I want. It is about getting what Jesus wants. Denying yourself is the most outlandish thing according to our culture. Because what does our culture say? I need what I want to be happy. Anything that stops me from getting what I want is opposition. It's persecution. It's terrible. I have to have it in order to be happy. And Jesus says, deny yourself. The way to true happiness is not you getting everything you want. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus prayed in a garden, wrestling with the cross he was about to bear for the sins of the world. And I encourage us as we close here to make his prayer our prayer. This is what he says in Luke 22, verse 42. He pulled away from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and prayed, Father, remove this cup from me, but please, not what I want, what you want. Not what I want, what you want, Jesus. Lord Jesus, make that the cry of our heart, not what I want. There's so many things I want. I want things to go my way. I want to be in control. I want to make things happen, but that's not the path to happiness. That's not the path to become like you. That's a path to constantly be disappointed and frustrated and unhappy in life. You invite us to come, to crucify our desires, what we want to deny ourselves, to kill our self-will, and say, I now live to do your will, Jesus. I want what you want. If what you want isn't what I want, I believe that your path is a path to happiness. Even though I think happiness lies over here with what I want, I believe, I trust you, I know that you're good. And I'm going to believe that happiness lies down the path that you choose to.